What chapter are we up to? 18. 18. 18. Excellent. Very good. Okay. Here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to do. This is very different. Well, it's not very different. Um, it's very similar, but it's similar in a really, really, really fast pace. Much faster pace than we've been going. And I want to tell you why. This is just my opinion, but there's a story behind my opinion. And the, my opinion is that chapters 18 through 25 are the easiest place to get lost in Tanya. So either you have to go really, 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 really slow, or really, 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 really fast <laughs> in order to not get lost. The Tanya map that you see behind me, which is basically the first big project in Tanya that I did. And it's what really started me seriously studying Tanya, at least the style that uh, we're studying here, meaning the structure and the flow and all that good stuff. The Tanya map, you know they say necessity is the mother of invention. So the Tanya map came about because I found myself getting lost in Tanya, and I really felt I needed a map in order to not get lost. And where was I getting lost? Well, there are a lot of places, but the main place where I would get lost every time, I would get lost every year when we would go through the daily Tanya study of Chitas, I'd get lost any time I would study Tanya on my own, I would always get lost in chapters 18 through 25. I couldn't follow what was happening and why, and why it was happening. And, and it was because of 18 through 25 that I felt there must be a method to all of this. There must be some real order. And if I can just learn that order, I'll stop getting lost. And then because of 18 through 25, I started researching and I learned about the underlying framework or organization or system behind the entire Tanya. So that's, that's a little preface to why I want to do something at a much different pace today and I want to go through 18 through 25 in one shot. That's eight chapters. Yes, I know. I want to try to do it in one class, eight chapters. That's very, very fast. And some of the, 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 the content of these chapters is some of the most um, difficult, which makes it even more absurd that I'm trying to do eight chapters in one class. Nevertheless, I feel this is the right way to do it, especially if it's your first time going through and getting a feel for the structure of, of things. Okay? All right. So if anyone wants to jump off this roller coaster before it starts, okay, you didn't jump off, click, 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 we're going up the first ascent. All right, it's too late. You better have your belt on. Okay, let's go. All right. Remember what we just did? Well, remember what we just did before we did what we just did? Do you remember... Um, 
Let's back up to chapter 12. You were given a tool called Mayach Shalat Alalev, the brain rules over the heart, which when we learned it at first in chapter 12, means in plain English, what is it? What is the tool? Impulse control, right? Okay. So it doesn't matter what you feel. Don't worry what you feel. Focus on your behavior. Okay, fine, no problem. Then do you remember in 16 and 17 how Mayach Shalat Alalev took on new meaning and it became a new tool? What was that tool? Well, uh, let me back up. What was my problem? When I was exercising impulse control, it works. Of course it works, because I'm a human being and I have that power to do that. But what's the, what's the drawback? You're not happy. There's still emotional. Yeah. Stress. Stress. It's, yeah. And I'm lacking the, the emotional consistency. So it's like it's all behavioral. There's nothing going on inside. And there's that huge gulf between insides and outsides. Okay. So 16 and 17 was meant to ameliorate that, that conflict, that stress, and give me some tools or a tool for changing my insides, meaning changing my emotions. So 1617 gave me a tool called Mayach Shalta Alev, but it's a different Mayach Shalta Alev. What was, what was 1617 about? Transforming, Transforming my insights through what? What activity? Meditation. Meditation, thank you. Okay, so through meditating, I'm going to produce or manufacture emotions that will be motivation for the behaviors. And that way I'm going to get emotionally congruent with my behaviors. So at first I just force myself, I force my behaviors even though they're not congruent with my emotions, I'm overriding my emotions. Then I learn how to actually bring my emotions into line with the behaviors. Okay. How long does it take to get your emotions transformed through meditation? How long does it take to make yourself completely aligned inside and outside? It's a lifetime, forever. Okay, thank you. 18 through 25 is called, colloquially, the Alter Rebbe doesn't call it this way, but in, in, on the title page, uh, if you remember, we referred to the title page in the first class. The Alter Rebbe says, well, the Alter Rebbe brings that verse, from the Torah, this matter is very near to you. And then he he says, the purpose of the book is to explain how it is close. In a close and a far, or a long and a short manner. I'm not going to get a whole get into a whole discussion of the paradox of long and short. That something can be long and short, and conversely can be short and long. That's a discussion for another time. But Chassidim colloquially refer to 16 and 17 as the long way, 18 through 25 as the short way. By the way, doesn't something strike you as funny right there? Yeah, the short way is long. <laughs> <laughs> the long way is two chapters, the short way is eight chapters. Okay. So obviously, long and short doesn't refer to how long it takes to explain it in Tanya. It refers to how long it takes to get results. So the short way um, is something that will work right away for you. 
But it takes a long time to explain how it works. It takes eight chapters to explain how it works. The long way, it doesn't really take that long to explain how it works. Go meditate. Go think. Create some emotions. But it's a lifetime investment in order to see fruits. So we have the long way. We know the long way. And, and we haven't given up on the long way. We're still doing the long way. We're going to meditate for the rest of our lives and try to create the emotions. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we also are now being given another tool, which is in case of emergency break glass. If you're in a pinch and you really need to become emotionally congruent, this method will work right away. In fact, one of the things out there says in chapter 18 is this is going to explain to you why it says this matter is very near to you. Why is it very near to you? The premise of 18 through 25 is you're not creating anything new. You're tapping into something you already have. So that's why it's very near. You don't even have to reach out to get it. It's in you already. That's very near. Well, if it's in me already, how come I'm not already feeling it? Okay. So that's what he explains. He explains that there's something called Ahava misuteris. That's your technical term for today. Ahava misuteris, which means latent or hidden love. Ahava, love, misuteris, from the word hester, concealed or concealment. Latent, hidden love. Chapter 18 explains like this. That every neshama, has this capacity, this love for Hashem. It's not if it's not by dint of anything we've done, we inherited it. We are spiritual trust fund babies. We didn't work for it, but we have a rich, 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 rich great great grandfather who left us all with a treasure. And, and that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. They worked, they amassed the fortune, they bequeathed to us a spiritual inheritance called the Ahava Misuteris, the latent love. And that's present in every single neshama. So if you say, I'm not such a high neshama, I'm more of a low neshama, I'm less sensitive, okay. Granted, that could be, and I could see how that might hinder your application of the long way. Maybe you're, you, maybe you're not so sensitive, and meditation is never going to really stir you deeply. Um, but this will work for any Jew. It's just revealing something that's hardwired. What is this hardwiring? Chapter 19 tells me, Actually, chapter 19 points to an interesting phenomenon in history. And that is that Jewish people throughout history, we know, have been persecuted and even killed for being Jewish. That's not 
unique to, to Judaism. What, what, what's unique and what's a phenomenon that requires explanation is we find not just isolated cases, but many cases where there was a Jew who was not Torah observant, who could not be bothered to um, inconvenience himself during his lifetime to observe Torah. And then such a Jew, see, if a religious person who's fervent, re, fervently religious dies for their religion, I don't really need an explanation for that. What I do need a, an explanation for is the phenomenon of Jewish people who were irreligious their whole lives, and they still die, al-Kiddush Hashem, that they choose death, and a painful death at that, in order to not denounce or renounce their Jewish identity. They couldn't be bothered during their lifetime to do the inconvenient thing and uh, follow Torah, follow halacha, and yet in the most in the in the situation where, where the survival instinct should kick in and tell you to abandon Judaism, now, now all of a sudden they have this Jewish superpower, and that's a phenomenon we see throughout history. Are there exceptions? Yes, there are exceptions. Um, you know, you know, anytime I learn chapter nineteen, people say, well, "What about the Muranos?" Okay. You know, don't, don't talk to me about the exceptions. Explain to me why it's a recurring phenomenon throughout history. How come it's not just an isolated thing that happened once? It's like some guy did it once. It's something that happened, unfortunately, thousands and hundreds of thousands of times throughout history. The Jews who were not religious and were not dedicated, at least seemingly through their behaviors during their lifetime, and they die as martyrs, like re refusing to renounce their Judaism? How do you explain that? I mean, in our day and age, I think anybody, I think anybody who's older than teenager today can relate to this concept. To me, whenever I read chapter 19, I immediately think of the Daniel Pearl story. Yeah. Right? And, and I don't have to get into explaining how he lived his life and, you know, he was intermarried and all those things, and it's, I'm not going to describe it at length because it's not, it's not complimentary to, to, to him. But what we can all just agree is absolutely mind-blowing is that declaration of, of, of Jewish pride. And you're like, where's it coming from? Where does it come from? And it, it comes from the neshama. What it is, I call it, I mean, this is just my term for it, but I think it's a good term, Spiritual adrenaline. Just like the body, when it feels that it's a survival, do-or-die situation, all of a sudden gets really crazy strong, the neshama, when it feels a threat, when it feels that something can cut off its connection to God, which for the neshama, that's death, this spiritual adrenaline rush kicks in, and all of a sudden it gets this, this just surge of power. Uh, and that's, that's the phenomenon of irreligious Jews giving up their lives for Judaism. And that's why they couldn't do it their whole life. The whole lifetime they couldn't do it. Because they, they, they didn't feel, on a conscious level, they didn't feel there's a threat to the neshama. They felt that whatever compromise they were making in their Judaism was not severing them from Judaism or from God. We call that 
the Ruach Shtus, the spirit of foolishness. But I think it's sort of a misnomer, because the spirit of, a spirit of foolishness, if only it would speak foolishly, then it would be easier to deal with. The spirit of foolishness speaks very intelligently. You know what it means to rationalize? To rationalize is rational lies. Lies that sound like they make sense. So the rationalization of every Jew is, I'm going to disregard the following mitzvah, and it's not going to cut me off from God. And so we draw a line, an arbitrary line that we've drawn. I remember a... Uh, I'm not saying this to make fun. It's not. I don't think it's funny. Actually, I think it's very sad. But a uh, a reform temple that had in its written membership rules that if you make an event in the hall of the temple, if you rent their space, that uh, they have certain dietary laws there, certain dietary codes, and that is that you're not alert, allowed to serve high treif. Have you ever heard the high treif? There's high treif and there's low treif. Okay. Yeah, okay. So, what is... High treif means visible shellfish, like recognizable shellfish or pig product. Okay? Low treif would be like, you know, it's, it's you know, whatever. It's mixed in there. I can't tell if it's beef or it's pork. I don't know. Whatever it is. Ground, ground some ground meat. Or, um, or it wasn't slaughtered properly. You know, I don't know if this was uh, from the kosher slaughtering house or this is from uh, wherever. That's low treif. Uh, I'm not sure where milk and meat fit in, but but the point is, we could laugh at that if we want, but every single one of us, with our rational eyes, you know, with our... Well, it's a level of sensitivity. You could call it a level of sensitivity. Yeah, so um, but the point of it is, it's arbitrary. God drew the line here, and you draw the line, you know, somewhere past that. And you say, you know, this is what God is okay with, but here's what I'm okay I, I had a guy one time call me who was furious. He was, I'm heartbroken. He was heartbroken that his son was engaged to a non-Jewish woman. And... I didn't say it to him immediately, but we had a few different conversations. And at one point, I, I mean, not in a, you know, ha-ha, I told you so, God forbid, but I pointed out to him that he had a Christmas tree in his home. It was seasonal to him. It was whatever. It was getting into the, the spirit. Now, I'm, why am I pointing this out? I'm not here to indict this fellow. I mean, he, 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 was, he was heartbroken. My point is, somehow in his mind, and by the way, we all do this. We can all relate to this because we all have our arbitrary line. Somehow in his mind, having a Christmas tree in the house was not crossing a red line. Somehow he made that okay, but his son actually marrying a non-Jew, now you cross the line. Now you've crossed the line. Well, why now? Why now? Because that's where you arbitrarily decided is the red line. So, so here's the thing. Here's the point. 
This is not a discussion of assimilation. That's not the point. The point is, chapter 18 tells me I have avamisuteris, hidden love, latent love for Hashem. I didn't earn it, I inherited it. I got it from the Ovis, from the patriarchs. Chapter 19 says, that love will come out like a spiritual adrenaline rush when I cannot fool myself any longer that, I'm, that this isn't a red line. As long as I think, as long as I can fool myself, this isn't a red line, I can cross this and it'll be okay, I'm going to cross it and think that I'm okay. But some things are so obvious and so apparent that it's a red line, like when the non-Jews say, renounce the God of Israel or we will kill you. It's pretty obvious what's at stake. The adrenaline rush, the spiritual adrenaline rush, kicks in, and now all of a sudden I have super Jew powers. Now why are we talking about this? I'll tell you what. <coughs> what was my point at the beginning of these chapters? I wanted to get emotionally congruent. I wanted to find internal motivation in myself for doing the mitzvot. Where am I going to find that emotional push? Well, one way, I was taught already, I'm going to meditate and create emotions. Okay, fine, no problem. I'll do that for the rest of my life, but it takes a long time. But is there a way I can push a button and get a sudden surge of emotion? Yes, there is. The spiritual adrenaline rush. Problem is, the only case I know where that gets activated is in an obvious do-or-die situation where I feel my connection to God being threatened. And I can't fool myself that anything less is at stake. How in the world am I going to get that reaction, that intense reaction to happen when I'm not you know, facing a sword? <laughs> How am I going to have that reaction when it's five hours and 59 minutes after I ate the turkey sandwich and now I want to have the Chalavisol Shmerling chocolate bar and it's practically a mitzvah to have the Chalavisol Shmerling chocolate bar and wait one more minute, what's a minute? And the turkey was not even, it wasn't beef, it's turkey, it's only rabbinical meat, I mean, come on, a minute's going to make a difference. And I start to rationalize. How am I going to get super Jew powers in that case? You know, you hear these stories from time to time about a mother lifted up a car because her child was trapped underneath. Can you imagine, you find out, you read in the paper, a mother lifted a car. Okay, wow. And a few days later, you give her a call and you say to her, listen, I read about what you did. You lifted a car. It's pretty amazing. I'm getting a stackable washer-dryer delivered today. <laughs> but we want to install it on the second floor. Why don't you come over and help us schlep? What's she going to say? How much? <laughs> How much money you want? Fifty bucks? Come on, you could lift a car, I'm sure you could lift the washer-dryer. She can't do it. It's not a question of, 
50 bucks, 100 bucks. You could pay her a million bucks. She cannot lift the washer dryer. Because the motivation isn't there. She lifted the car to save her child. She's not going to lift the washer dryer for any other reason than that. So, I know that if I were under threat, God forbid, and the only choices were a painful death or separating myself from God, I know, and not because I'm a sensitive person or I'm spiritually fit or I've worked on myself, no, just because I'm a spiritual descendant of the patriarchs, and I have this inheritance within me called the latent love, the Ava Mesoteris. So I know that I would not allow myself to be separated from God. And I would some I can't relate to it in this state that I'm in, thank God. But I know that if I had to lift that car, somehow, you know, that that I would lift that car. But I'm not gonna lift the washer dryer. All of us, all of us, could endure any torture, and, and, and would endure any torture. God forbid, we shouldn't know of it. But we would willingly do so in order to not consciously, willingly separate ourselves from Hashem and from Torah and from the Jewish people. The question becomes now, how is that going to be relevant to me? How can I use that in day-to-day -day mitzvah observance of getting myself emotionally congruent with my behaviors in regular situations? What am I going to do? Pay a bunch of terrorists to follow me around? Houdini kind of had a guy like this. You know how Houdini died? No, Houdini is a nice Jewish boy from uh, Appleton, Wisconsin. His father was a Hungarian rabbi. Houdini died because <clears throat> to stay fit, he'd hire a guy to hide in different places in his house and jump out and punch him out of nowhere to keep, you know, to keep him on his toes. And the last time the guy jumped out, he wasn't ready, and he punched him, and he uh, he died. So maybe I should hire some terrorists to hide in my house, and from time to time, like let's say I'm about to eat the dairy chocolate bar five hours and 59 minutes after the turkey sandwich, they have to jump out from behind the refrigerator and say, eat the chocolate bar or we'll kill you. And then I say, no, you'll kill me first. I will not eat this chocolate bar for the next 54 seconds. Watch, watch, watch. Okay, now it's six hours. Now I'll eat the chocolate bar, but not a second sooner. No way. I'll die before I will transgress. Maybe we could create such a service. Maybe that could be a business idea for this class. No, that's not the way to do it. But... Wouldn't it be nifty if there were some way of looking at 
every mitzvah with a new appreciation, a genuine appreciation that would allow me to emotionally react, to viscerally react to every moral choice, to every occasion where I had to choose between God's way and my way, to, to have just an automatic visceral reaction to it as if it's a completely all or nothing proposition connect or disconnect from God at this moment. And then I would, then that spiritual adrenaline would kick in and I would have that intense reaction. I'd be able to lift the car. Okay, so that's what chapters 20 through 25 are going to work on with me. How to get a perspective on every single mitzvah that once I have that perspective, I'm going to be able to have that, uh, that automatic, intense reaction. And that's why I say this is different than 16 and 17, where you're creating emotions. This is you're tapping into pre-existing, but latent, meaning potential emotions. They're not yet active, but they're already there, at least potentially, and now all we have to do is push the button. And what does it take to push the button? It takes a new perspective on mitzvahs. So what happens? Basically, chapters 20, 21, 22 are very, 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 very deep um, theology and philosophy. And they go into the subject of the oneness of Hashem, how the world, the existence of creation does not imply any duality or any existence separate from Hashem, that really there is nothing but oneness, really nothing other than Hashem. But these are very deep concepts. In fact, the entire second volume of Tanya, which, God willing, maybe someday we'll study together, there's a second volume of Tanya called Shara Yichad Ve'amuna. And it's an introduction plus 12 chapters, and it's exclusively about the idea of Hashem's oneness. And a lot of those themes and a lot of those uh, ideas are condensed into these chapters here, 20, 21, 22. Uh, and, and this is where I would always get lost because I was like, I knew that, because it, it seems so funny. You're learning volume one of Tanya, the 53 chapters, which is about Avaida. It's about your work, your spiritual growth. And then, which was, was always going to talk about the soul and the conflict between the two souls and, and that kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of that, it starts talking about the nature of God's oneness. It's, it starts talking about cosmology, you know, the origins of creation and how creation is not separate from creator. And, and I would always get lost and say, how is this happening? Why is this happening? at this place in this book. Why is it happening at all in this book? It doesn't seem consistent with the theme. But here's what I'm explaining to you. The whole purpose of 18 through 25 is like this. You have a latent capacity to give up everything and, in, and to endure anything, torture, death, suffering, anything in order to hold on to your connection with God. But that only comes out when there's no fooling yourself. When there's no arbitrary lines, when it's very clear that God's lines are red lines, and there's 
So how are we going to get ourselves to feel that? In order to feel that, that's what takes so many chapters. He has to essentially explain to us. You know, you could, if it weren't Chabad, if it weren't Chachma Bin Adas, which means intellectual, they could just say it to us. They could make a very emotional appeal, and they could just say, "Hey, you know what? Anytime you go against God, you're cutting yourself off from God. Think about that." And that's a pretty intense statement, and that might make an impression on me for a few minutes. But Chabad means Chochma bin Adas, means explain to me how that's true, because that's a very radical statement. So this is what Tanya's doing at this point. He says, listen, if you knew that your connection with Hashem is at stake, that this is all or nothing at this moment, this is do or die. I promise you, you would have the ability to see it through. What I need to explain to you is how every single mitzvah, even the waiting until six hours after the turkey sandwich before you eat the chalavisol chocolate bar, that that is also do or die. And I'm going to explain it to you in a sensible, rational way. That's what takes so many chapters. You follow what I'm saying here? Mm -hmm. Okay. So chapter 20 tells me like this. Chapter 20 basically says, and I don't want to get into it because I literally I could, we could have an entire course, like multiple classes for weeks and months just on chapter 20. It's, it's the deepest concept there is. Divine unity. That there's no other existence than Hashem. There's nothing but Him. I, but He made a creation. Creation is not an existence apart from Him. It's not ontologically independent. It is ontologically dependent. It's not absolute existence. It's relative existence. It may exist, but not with its own existence. So there's nothing but Hashem. And even after having created Creation is not an existence separate from Hashem, not even an existence that we might say is secondary to Hashem. It's not a separate existence. It's only an extension of His oneness. And how is that possible? Well, you know, Hashem hides Himself behind Himself. There's the divine names, Havaya, Yudke, Vovke, the transcendent, was, is, and will be. There's a divine name, Elohim, which is the, the, the numerical value of Hatava, of, of, of the nature. So Hashem hides himself behind Hashem, like the snail. When you look at a snail, are you looking at the snail or are you looking at his shell? Do you have to cut open the shell in order to see the snail? The snail's shell is part of the snail. So by looking at the snail from the outside and seeing the shell, that is also the snail. So if a creation is hiding the Creator, but the creation is an extension of the Creator, and nothing separate from the Creator, you're always seeing <clears throat> Creator. Once you understand that, you can understand that every single mitzvah, there's really only two mitzvahs. The first two mitzvahs of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God, and there should be no other gods. Every positive commandment, every fulfillment of every positive commandment is an affirmation that there's no one but Hashem. Nothing but Hashem. 
every transgression of every prohibition is flouting that, is saying, yes, there is something besides Hashem. You know what there is? Me, in my free will, in a tiny little pocket of reality, I've carved out to do whatever I want to do. Yeah? How do you arouse the Abba, Mr. Terrace? Because I encounter people who would not give up their lives and do not care if their children yeah, that's, are to marry, and they're, right. they're okay. That's what, that's what we're talking about here. But you're saying that, it, you know, when push comes to shove and it's a life or death situation, nine times out of ten, we hope that the person will be most yes, that's, that's, but yes, there they is will. the tenth, and we're not discussing. This is not a uh, meeting of uh, to discuss uh, Jewish continuity. This is remember. Don't lose sight of the fact this is Tanya. This is talking about how you are going to take seriously the mitzvahs that you're not taking seriously. Mitzvahs that you're doing already, because I'm assuming you're using mayach shal impulse control to force yourself. Don't lose sight of the discussion. The discussion is where are you going to get your emotional push when you need it? So what I'm saying to you is, let's just remember the context. See, I told you, these, these chapters are so twisty-turny and complex that even as fast as I'm going, we're losing the thread. So let's just remember. Why are we here? What are we doing in 18 through 25? You're doing mitzvahs already without emotional uh, congruency. And you want to get that emotional congruence. You'll do it even without. You'll force yourself to do it even if you're not feeling it. But you'd like to also feel it. So I told you, go ahead and meditate. You're saying, fine, I'm meditating. But it's taking a lifetime. Okay, in the meantime, you want to get an emotional surge? I know how you can get an emotional surge. You and I both know how it could happen. If you felt that your entire connection is at stake. So this is explaining to you how every single mitzvah is putting your entire connection with God at stake. Now, here's something I want to just, I want to make a point uh, parenthetically. I'm sure many of you have heard many, many times, and we've said it many times, and we continue to say it. Don't be a perfectionist. It's not all or nothing. It's about progress. So start with one mitzvah, mitzvah geredes mitzvah. One mitzvah will lead to the next mitzvah. Don't worry about it. And we say this all the time to people. Just start. Just start doing something positive and build. You don't have to do everything all at once. Is that true? Yes, it's true. Yes, it's true. But this is also true. It's not something we tell people to think about a lot because it's scary. But it is true. That every moment has a certain eternality to it. And so at every moment you are making a choice whether or not to be eternally connected or, God forbid, eternally the opposite. Because every moment exists forever for Hashem who is above time. So this is not the approach that we speak about most of the time. We don't normally focus on this. But there is a truth to it. And the truth is that at every moment, every mitzvah is a choice, connect or disconnect. It's a binary code, right? Yes, it's a binary. Yes, yes. It's, it's connect or disconnect. Are you in or are you out? That's right. And that's what we're talking about here, about God's oneness. God's oneness means God's everythingness. 
So if you say, yeah, God is everything. God is the only true reality. And yet, I've carved out this sliver of reality for myself where I exercise my own self-will. Well, that is idolatry. It's not tantamount to idolatry. That is idolatry. Because I've just said, Hashem isn't everything. Hashem is everything and beyond everything, except for this little pocket of self-will I have carved out for myself. This little bubble where I'm going to do what I want to do. This is not the way that we normally think. But that's what's happening in these chapters. He's explaining to you very intellectually the, how, how, how this makes sense. It explains to you in chapter, in, in chapter 22 that idolatry is not... Idolatry doesn't mean that you believe that, uh, that, that, there's, uh, that, that, that there's no God and there's, all, there's other gods instead of God. Idolatry means you believe there's a God. In fact, you believe he's the God of the gods and he's the most powerful and he's the head of the pantheon. But there are other forces at work. Okay, so for most of us, it's not like we believe in a pantheon of gods, but we do believe that there are other forces in the universe that act and have some sway over our lives. You know, if you think that the stock market is a force in and of itself, and that every single number isn't orchestrated by God, that, that, that's idolatry. If, if you believe in any force or power in the universe having an effect on your life that's not being orchestrated completely by God, that, that, that's idolatry. So when we have a conflict of interests where we say, you know, I could do it God's way or I could pay reverence to this reality over here. You know, there's a certain reality, there's a certain, look, yeah, Shabbos is coming. And that's God's law. But, you know, uh, the reality is, hey, remember I told you that example of the lady who had to run to the bank to make the deposit? Remember I told you that story? I love that story. The lady who was not Shabbos observant, had never really lit Shabbos candles, and she started lighting Shabbos candles on time. Rings a bell, story we told? The lady started, I know I told it, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. And then she had this conflict where she realized she wrote a check she, that, that she doesn't have money for it in the account. And she had to make a choice. Is she going to light Shabbos candles on time? Or is she going to get to the bank before it closes and, and, and uh, make a deposit so her check doesn't balance? Okay, you could look at that as... You could look at that on a scale. Like, well, how big of a mitzvah is it if you do it? How bad, how bad of a sin is it if you don't do it? Or you could look at it in a binary way. Is God all that exists, or are there other powers in the universe that you have to reckon with, like the bank? Like being afraid your husband's going to be upset with you that you bounced a check. If you think about it like that, well, hold on a second. If I run to the bank instead of lighting Shabbos candles on time, that's idolatry. I just said that God isn't everything. I just said there are other powers in the world that I have to reckon with. That's idol worship. I mean, that's not tantamount to idol worship. That's idol worship. Hold on a second. 
if the Greeks came with swords and they said, bow down to our idols or we will kill you, we would all be like Hannah and her seven sons. But if it's lighting Shabbos candles on time or making the deposit, okay, somebody who lights Shabbos candles every week on time has been doing it for years, might not be that big of a test. But not because they consider it idolatry if they don't, more like, you know, they're used to lighting Shabbos candles on time. This lady had only been doing it for a few weeks, if you remember the story. She was able to see, hold on a second, in this lies my entire connection. And I'm not giving it up. And I don't care what the consequences. Consequences be damned. So that's a little bit of that avamisiteris coming out. That's that super Jew adrenaline rush where I will endure anything. I will endure pain of death, but I'm not giving up my connection. Now chapter 23 talks about... Chapter 23 is a little bit of a positive chapter that after a lot of the negative, scary stuff, so it tells us the positive stuff. Chapter 23 says that when you do a mitzvah, you are a chariot. You are a vehicle to Hashem's will. Like a car and a rider. The rider or, or, or driver directs the car. The car has no will of its own, unless it's uh, Herbie the Love Bug. <laughs> Nobody... Okay, fine. No problem. Yeah. Okay. Automatic cars. Oh, the automatic cars. That's what I meant. I meant the self-driving cars that are coming. Out. That's what I meant. But by the way, even the self-driving cars are programmed. But not by you. Not by me. But the point is, they are nullified. They are bottled to some director, conductor outside themselves. They don't. They're not autonomous. <clears throat> when you do a mitzvah, you like a chariot. You're like a vehicle to Hashem's will. So when you're lighting Shabbos candles, like it's like your hand becomes becomes Hashem's hand. There's that that that, that nullification that happens when you uh, when you do a mitzvah. When you study Torah, it's even more. When you study Torah, there's that unity. We talked about it in chapter five also. Hashem's mind, Hashem's perspective becomes your perspective. So, in chapter 23, we're meant to remember how every mitzvah really unites us with Hashem. And that moment of unity, it lasts for a moment in time, but above time, it lasts forever. Chapter 24, okay, a little bit scary again. It says, and remember, when you disconnect, you're disconnecting forever. And does it matter which disconnection? No, what does it matter? It's either Hashem is everything or He's nothing. So it doesn't matter if it's actually bowing down to an idol or if it's eating the, the, the dairy chocolate bar five hours and 59 minutes after the turkey sandwich. Either you are nullified to his will or you are, and we say it a lot in this class, ego is E-G-O, easing God out, or edging God out. Right? There's no degrees of... No degrees, no degrees. Because you would think of... No degrees, zero degrees. Now, I told you before, in other contexts, we would certainly talk about, 
you know, progress, not perfection, and it's a ladder, and it doesn't matter which rung you're on, it matters which direction you're moving, as long as you're moving upward, all that stuff is good. And normally that's how we talk. But in this context, where we're trying to tap into that spiritual adrenaline rush, no degrees, no gradations, you're either connected or you're disconnected. That's it. Because what we have to establish is the red line isn't somewhere out here, somewhere beyond where you think you've reached, where you, oh, I'm still safe. Yeah, I'm cutting corners, but I haven't gotten to the red line yet, like the guy I told you about who was making serious compromises, but he still felt he hadn't crossed the red line until something happened that he was uncomfortable with and he was devastated, he was shocked, right? Okay, but what we're saying is, wherever halacha is, that's the red line. That's it. And it doesn't matter if it's... Uh, what we consider a major mitzvah or a minor mitzvah or it's biblical or it's rabbinic, doesn't matter. Either Hashem is everything or He's not. And then chapter 25 wraps it all up for us and says, you want to know how it is very accessible to you? It is very close to you to get emotionally pumped up and congruent every time to your perfect behaviors? Just remember, and it's not meditation. Meditation means take a new idea and think about it until I create a new emotion. Memory is something I've, that's been with me already. Memory is, you know, regaining my focus. I'm not learning a lesson. This is something I've known. It's like a wake-up call. Oh my gosh, what am I doing? What am I doing? And it just hits you. And it's poignant. Chapter 25 says like this, we're wrapping up. You would endure the pain of death. You would endure gruesome, grisly death. God forbid, God forbid, but you would. In order not to willingly separate yourself from God, from Torah, from Jewishness. How painful is it to give up on what you want. To give up on whatever it is, this food that I'd like to eat, this pleasure that I'd like to pursue, this relationship I'd like to be in, whatever it is. But it's prohibited by Torah law. Okay, is there some pain involved in depriving oneself and not pursuing whatever it is that you want? Of course there's some pain involved in not indulging yourself. But that pain is insignificant. Think about it intellectually. That pain is insignificant compared to the pain that you would willingly embrace under the do-or-die situation of, you know, if you were, God forbid, in the Daniel Pearl situation, and you would endure the most unspeakable pain willingly. And, and have and, and have the emotional congruence with the behavior. You would have enough emotional strength and drive to actually be emotionally congruent with that behavior. So I know you could get yourself emotionally congruent with 
waiting for another minute before you have the dairy chocolate bar. And I, and I say, I, I, know, I know waiting a minute before you have the dairy chocolate bar is, is it's, it's intentionally supposed to be trivial because it's supposed to be light and funny. And I don't mean to um, <clears throat> trivialize the struggles that we have because I understand that a lot of times there is a struggle, but that's what we have to remember. That whatever pain is involved, physical pain, emotional pain, usually it's emotional pain. It's the fear, you know, it's the fear of lacking. It's the fear of missing out. FOMO. The FOMO, yeah. And it's not a joke. I mean, the FOMO, that anxiety of you know, giving up on something that I would have liked. Giving up on something that would be fulfilling, and, but, but Hashem doesn't let me do it. That can be really, really powerful. That can be a powerful fear. I mean, honestly speaking, most people do stuff that they shouldn't do. They know they shouldn't do. Most people compromise their, their values, not out of laziness, uh, not out of apathy, but there's some fear. There's some sort of like, you know what? I know it's not right, but how bad is it really? Well, why did you start rationalizing? Why did the rational lies come to you? Because you didn't want to experience whatever pain, whatever feeling of lack or deprivation. So here's the thing to remember. You would endure far more inconvenience, to state it mildly. You would endure far more pain to retain your connection. If you view it as retaining your connection, if you view it as a decision I'm making right now for my eternal connection, this moment will exist in eternity, connected or not connected, then automatically that avamisuteris, that hardwired reaction that you didn't develop, you didn't earn it, you didn't, you didn't go out and, 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 and train yourself, you, you inherited it. You inherited it from the, from the patriarchs. That will kick in, and you will be emotionally congruent with the behavior that you've got to do right now. Yeah? If when the album is activated, like in a, in a do-or-die situation, yeah. you're saying it would be you know, comparably more painful, but it would theoretically be more painful in a, in a physical way, let's say torture, but emotionally, it, the, the soul knows it's doing Hashem's will, so right. it would be painful. Correct. That way, quite the opposite. Right, yes. So when you say if we use our own choice, our own red line, right. then it's incredibly more painful than the emotionally and autism. Yes, well, that's, that's correct. That's the whole point. That the soul, for the soul, disconnection from Hashem is painful. For the body, torture and, and being murdered is painful. Normally, a person pays more attention to what is painful and pleasurable to the body than what is painful and pleasurable to the soul. That's the regular, I mean, let's be honest. Who are we more in touch with? The godly soul or the animal soul? The point is, in one of these intense situations when you cannot fool yourself anymore, that's one of these rare moments where the soul's consciousness, the godly soul's consciousness, comes rushing to the fore, and its idea of pain and pleasure be displaces and pushes aside the bodily notion of pain and pleasure. And, and each one of us can experience that, God forbid, under an intense uh, situation of an intense, like a test, a test of faith, where we're literally being um, threatened uh, by pain of death to, to give up our connection. But the point is, and this is the last thing I want to tell you, I want to wrap it up, and then we're going to officially have finished uh, 18 through 25, is that 
an intelligent person who grasps what's really at stake and that Hashem is everything and there's nothing other than Hashem and there are no independent forces in the universe, not even independent but subservient, nothing. There's nothing but Hashem. His will is everything. And every single mitzvah is an affirmation that there's nothing but God. And every transgression of every prohibition is, is flouting the idea that, the, that, that there is nothing but God. When, when an intelligent person will really appreciate that, you will find that visceral gut reaction to every single mitzvah. Right, let's let's officially end because I don't want to hold people here. Yeah. Okay. And then. But okay. So ask ask. I'm, I'm, everyone can officially go. Okay. What's the? I, well, I'll deal with the question, but it's off the record. Sure, sure. Yeah. I want to make one announcement before people leave. Oh. Oh. Connie needs to make an announcement. Please don't run away. I'll I'll, I'll read.